coming up on this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Because he saw the misery of sin, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Uh, the need of the gospel to take the feet out of the miry clay and set them upon the rock and uh, people dying left and right. I mean, I, I can't imagine, you know. You mentioned Saving Private Ryan. Again, I'm not advertising, but the vividness of the movie was, uh, or the series, I guess, you know, a horrible thing, but this is what those guys in World War II had to deal with and in World War One. And, uh, you know, I, I'd like to think that because of what he saw in the war and his strengthening, his resolve for the gospel really helped him get ready for what was going to take place in the 20s. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and you know I say that every week, and I'm probably going to stop saying that because after 23 episodes, people out there listening ought to know that I am the host of this particular podcast. So maybe I'll stop saying it, but I think it's just part of my normal speech patterns as it were. But anyway, as I said, this is broadcast number 23 of this particular podcast, and we do welcome you to this edition that I think will be an interesting one as we talk about a subject of, of uh, interesting importance, I think, um, diving into the background of a man that has some historical significance to the church and looking at some interesting aspects of a person that... Um, was uh, part of the initial founding of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church many, many years ago, and more about that in just a minute. If you are interested in more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, you can visit our website at gpts.edu. If you want to get more information about podcasts, the, the past ones, ones coming up in the future, you can go to our website at Confessing Our Hope. Dot com, and there you will always find information relevant to each and every broadcast, resources, information, links. You can listen to the podcast right there on your computer, as well as the new mobile app that has been released for the seminary. You can get all the podcasts there, as well as other information um, in addition to the podcast. So feel free to check those things out and utilize them. They're all free, of course, and so take advantage of that as you're able. Now, as I indicated, we'll we're going to be talking with a man today who wrote a book um, dealing with um, correspondence from J. Gresham Machen, especially during the period of World War I. And it's a rather interesting um, book, and also I hope to be an interesting conversation. We do have in studio today Dr. Barry Waugh, who got his Ph.D. from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And an interesting dissertation at that, he did his dissertation on the Westminster Confession of Faith, specifically uh, dealing with one sentence in the confession that was removed in the American Revision. And so he did his entire dissertation on that um, one sentence. So uh, anyway, uh, Dr. Waltz, good to have you here today, and I trust this will be an interesting conversation uh, dealing specifically with this book that PNR had put out, Letters from the Front. And I'm curious, as uh, we begin talking, what gave you the uh, the drive or even what started or prompted the idea of writing a book of this nature? I was doing work in the archives at Westminster 
on a, an article I wrote a few years ago and came across a few of the letters, and I asked Grace Mullen, the archivist, if there were any other letters, and she said, well, there's, there's a whole stack of them. And so that's how I got started on it. Machen interests me. Uh, to study somebody, I have to like the person and feel that if I was to meet the person, I would like them. Hmm. And Machen has always come across to me that way. And there's been a few people I've quit studying because I decided I really don't like them. So, uh, Well, for the sake of the listeners out there who maybe you're certainly familiar with Machen, obviously. Um, I, I know a little bit about him, um, having read some historical work works about him and his time and his life as he um, labored back in, especially in the 1930s. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who J. Gresham Machen was um, and maybe some of his contributions to the church, uh, especially in his early days. He grew up in Baltimore. He had been in a southern church, PCUS church. His mother and father uh, were both, of course, Presbyterians. The strength of the Presbyterian connection, I think, was his mother. She had come from a home in Macon, and her father was an elder in the First Presbyterian Church in Macon. And uh, Machen was trained at home, I think, predominantly by his mother because his father was a very successful attorney and a very busy man. And uh, his mother directed his reading, uh, taught him the Bible, had him, for example, memorize the kings of Israel as a young boy, when I was in O. Palmer Robertson's Old Testament history and theology class many years ago, we had to memorize the kings. So Machen had already accomplished that mm. just as a boy. Mm. And uh, he was educated in a private uh, classical academy, went to Johns Hopkins University, graduated, went to Princeton, um, then did studies in Germany uh, with the leading scholarship of the time in New Testament. And uh, his contributions, uh, while he was at the front during World War I, he was preparing for lectures. He was to deliver at Union Seminary in Richmond, uh, the Sprunt Lectures. It's an annual thing. I don't know if it still goes on, but at that time it was. And those lectures became his book, The Origin of Paul's Religion. Mm -hmm. Of course, may have heard of Christianity and liberalism, recently been reprinted by, uh, I believe, Erdman's and Carl Truman wrote an introduction to it, The Virgin Birth of Christ, uh, comments on the Book of Galatians, several other things. He was a New Testament professor at Princeton, and he was influential in uh, founding the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I think I tend to think of him as the founder, but there were other men involved in it with him, and he exercised great influence with those people. And then in 1929, he was involved with other faculty members who had left Princeton Seminary to found Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Hmm. Now, this book specifically deals with, as, as it's titled, Letters from the Front. What is that? What are we getting at when we talk about that title? I mean, I, the subtitle certainly says his correspondence from World War One. This was during that period of time when he was engaged in serving in the military. 
Where was he serving during this period? He was serving in an area predominantly near the city of Soissons, which is sort of east-northeast of Paris. He did move around into other areas, but uh, that's where he did his work with what was a cooperative program between the French and the American YMCA, and they operated huts where soldiers could come and get hot chocolate and uh, mm-hmm. buy snacks and knickknacks and write letters with free paper and all that sort of a thing. And so it was a backup to the services provided by the military, and it was intended to be a nice, clean, wholesome place to read a book or even check books out. Uh, Machen did loan books. And uh, it was a support work. So even though it's letters from the front, he was behind the front. Uh, I think the closest he, he got in terms of his point of operation was about two miles. And so the soldiers would come and... Uh, he saw it as an opportunity just to help and hopefully have opportunities to talk about the gospel. Sure, and, and, and that's a pretty good opportunity, place to have that kind of opportunity when you're engaged in military combat. You don't know if tomorrow is your last day on earth, and so he seized upon that opportunity. What was his function in the military? He was not in the military. He was with the YMCA. Okay. And the YMCA had been founded in England in 1840-something and here in 1851. And they had been founded because of the Industrial Revolution and the, uh, to help young men who had been leaving the farms to go to the cities to get jobs in the factories. They wanted The Y wanted to provide a wholesome, clean place to live with Bible studies and organized athletics, feeling that you know, these things would help keep them from getting wrapped up with the wrong bunch in the big, nasty city. Now, while he was over there in France, um, interestingly, um, that he would write his mother, especially, in, in French. Is that where he learned the French language when he was serving over there, or did he already have knowledge of French before he went? Well, he, he wrote bits in French. He did not write the letters or... 99% English. But he would use French phrases, and uh, I know of one place he used an extended portion of a play in French. And he was kind of... I know Josh asked me a question, did, did Machen have any quirks? And I thought, well, that's an interesting question. And uh, I don't know it was a quirk, but he, he was early on very concerned about taking advantage of the opportunity to learn French. Mm -hmm. But then again, this is what he did. You know, he was a professor in New Testament, Greek, Latin, uh, other languages he would have used. And so I think that the French was something his mother had a very good grasp of. That was the impression I got from reading the letters. And uh, that it was sort of a way for him to make contact with her better. You know, I'm dealing with French. I know you've been through this. Uh, you know it so much better than I do. And here's how I'm doing with this or that. And sometimes, a few occasions, he mentioned some problems he was having, understanding verbs or this or that. It's something she would understand. Now, did he ever combine this French knowledge of French and, and his experiences there um, as it applied to his work in the New Testament? Well, while he was over there, after he got out of a combat 
the situation close to combat, well, actually, the, after the war ended in November of 1918, he took advantage of going to hear some of the French New Testament scholars lecture at the Sorbonne. And uh, he would, of course, I, I assume, listen to them in French as they were teaching their students. And his assessment of French New Testament scholarship was that there wasn't a whole lot there. Um, and, and if you go and look at the origin of Paul's religion, there's only one French scholar listed in the index that uh, he refers to. Just out of curiosity, who would that be? Seems like it was Loisy, L-O-I-S-Y. Okay. Not who I was thinking then. I had a different name in my head. <laughs> now, it, it, help me understand the, the timeline of Machen's work and, and what he did uh, being serving in the war. Um, was this before or after he spent time in Germany? This was after he spent time okay. in Germany. And um, how about how much, how long after that period? You got me there. Um, it was earlier in the 20th century. Um, it seems it was while he was still a lecturer, but I'm not sure of the dates. Now, when he was at Germany, though, he unless I misunderstood some of his background, he, did he not go to some liberal universities, and that's where he began to see some of the liberal influences that were starting to affect the American church? Yes, yes. Okay. He was at Marburg and Göttingen. He was uh, a re- uh, what's the term? A fellow. I, the English would say fellow. I can't remember what the term is. No, that's but okay. But he was studying there. Sure, sure. And you indicated that he was working as part of the YMCA, and that's interesting to me because in today's twenty first century context, you might think of the YMCA as one thing, but it but was it isn't it true that it was a much different entity? In, the, in that period, as it's become, and its genesis then was much different than, than it's actually evolved to be nowadays. How, did, how does it differ? I think it started out as sort of a interdenominational, evangelical uh, attempt to provide social guidance through uh, the gospel, through Bible studies to help young men. And it has evolved into uh, go where the place you go to to exercise. Uh, I have not been in a Y in quite a while, but I would assume that that's about all that it is. Yeah, I remember. Um, well, I'm going to date myself a little bit, and for the sake of those who listen to this, don't laugh too loudly. But um, when I was growing up, there was a song. I used to. It was a big song. Everybody used to sing it, especially at stadiums called YMCA. But anyway. We won't go there. We won't do any kind of a secular music background lesson today for the sake of the <coughs> listeners. But it was, uh, anyway, it was, a big, it was a big deal song. And everybody remembers doing it in the stadiums with their hands up and making the letters. Okay, so anyway, very different then, of right. course, that it turned out to be um, in today's world. Now, as far as Machen's t- age at this particular point in his life, uh, how old exactly was he? 37. So relatively young man, all things being equal. And this is prior to him coming back into the United States and then being embroiled at Princeton and, and all the issues that came out of that. We're going to come back to that, actually, in a minute. What um, I want to talk a little bit about letter writing in general. Um, 
certainly, and I've seen enough war movies to know that that was always a, seemed to be a big thing for the soldiers on the front to have opportunities to write. It was their only connection to family and friends at home. In your opinion, how has that changed in today's world, um, letter writing in general? Well, there's some people like me that hold on to it. Uh, I like getting a piece of paper in the mail or a card and mm-hmm. something tangible, something that didn't come through bits and bytes on a wire stored on a device somewhere. Um, but, you know, it's dying out. I mean, the letter has been replaced pretty much by email. Uh, advantage of email is everything that you do is dated in time. Uh, so you know when you did it exactly, where when you get a letter, all you get today usually. <laughs> You're so, right. uh, You're you know, right. there's a big advantage. One of the aggravations of, of using letters is when you come across that letter and there's no date on it. <laughs> well, email solves that for you. You're not going to run into that problem. So, But, I, you know, it's dying out. There are people that still write letters, but uh, email and electronic communication is just so convenient. And, and as you read through some of these letters from Machen, it, that gave you somewhat of a better insight, as it were, maybe into the mind and heart of Machen as he was talking about various subjects that are in these letters. What one thing, if you can think of this, uh, stood out maybe in your mind as you were reading through the things that he was writing back home? The thing that jumps to mind for me is that when he put his hand to the plow, he didn't look back. And it Mm -hmm. didn't matter whether he was writing a book of of heavy New Testament scholarship or trying to locate some sugar for his hot chocolate. Uh, (laughs) You know, I I read a review recently that kind of harped on the fact that he made hot chocolate, but it was the job that... uh, he did, and he did it to the best of his ability because he thought it was important. Hmm. And it didn't matter what the job was. He did it. There, there's a book at Westminster in the archives where he has a, a detailed account of the finances that he was in charge of. I mean, everything was done meticulously. Uh, you know, your father may have told you, just like mine told me, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And we live in a world where doing things well is not particularly popular. Well, Machen did things well. Mm. Everything that I can tell, he did well. And in these letters that you read, certainly you're, you're able to almost get inside the experiences that he was dealing with. And what were some of his experiences when he was there? Maybe start with some of the good experiences that you came across in your research. The good experiences, there, there are several. I, these are not necessarily going to be in chronological order, but I remember that he was in a train station, and there was an elderly man there, and I believe uh, his daughter was with him. And they were having trouble getting around. They were part of the group of refugees that were fleeing the things that were taking place in war. And, you know, he helped them out. He got a porter to come and help them out, and... and he noted that to his mother as a high point, but he also commented that, uh, you know, the war is just awful. Um, he commented on going to a concert 
where German prisoners, I believe, had made instruments themselves and how much he enjoyed listening to that concert. Uh, he gave hot chocolate to a, a, a German soldier, and his comment was, well, this is better than my mother's, you know, and, and that meant a lot to Machen. And I, I think, you know, we have a, a sense of separating a person's intellectual capacity and abilities from that person living in a real world with real people. He's not a head on a stick. You know, Machen's not a brain in a jar somewhere, but he was a human being, and he hurt in the war. Um, He was sorrowful for the people, and he wanted to help, and uh, he was very sensitive to the things that were going on around him. He was extremely aggravated about his inability to get into the, what was called the religious work, in quotes. but eventually he did, and he got the chance to lead Bible studies and, and preach and, and do those things. So I kind of lost sight of the question. What was the question? His good experiences. His good experience. I think, uh, of course, his greatest experience is that wonderful letter he wrote when he, after the war was over, you know, praise God for the end of the war. I mean, the Psalms are great to mm. praise God for the end of the war. I'm glad it's over. Uh, he says, I'm going to be a fighter for peace and oppose war and just went on and on and on. And so that was the greatest experience. I had. I mean, the misery of the whole experience. He commented once, it'd be nice just to see a whole piece of glass because everything had been shattered from artillery and concussion and so forth. And I think in some ways we're sheltered from that reality in our world today, in our digital era and everything else. I mean, we had the advantage of movies. I remember commenting just on that point you just made. um, I remember commenting to my wife and some friends about a movie that I'd seen, Saving Private Ryan. Maybe you've seen it. Um, And this is not an advertisement for Saving Private Ryan, just for the record. But if you've seen it, you know what I mean. I mean, it it really showed the the horrid aspects, the horrific aspects of war um, that... We just we really do not understand unless you're there. I mean, unless you've seen as you, just that simple statement. You know, I'd like to see once just a, a full sheet of glass. I mean, that seems like so secondary to our, our thinking. But when you're living in that day after day after day, all that horror, all that destruction, um, buildings half standing, um, it begins to take its toll. And and in some sense, you as, answered my next question. What were some of the bad times? It sounds as though. Machen just struggled with this, just the horror of what war is and the loss of human life in, in, a, in a major way, um, ways that we, we get upset when six people get shot um, over there. It happened by far more than that. So um, what were some of his personal hardships while he was serving in this capacity? Well, uh, he had the same hardships as I think the soldiers or anybody else involved in the war had he he wore the same clothes all the time he went for months without bathing um he jumped into foxholes not foxholes uh shell holes full of water as the artillery shells would come over he did have to don a gas mask on occasion Uh, he saw a soldier that was killed outside a building he was in um he talk, comments about the 
different aircraft that would fly over and how the soldiers could say even if they didn't see the plane well that's you know that's a Fokker triplane that's a that's a this or a that or whatever and he said he never could figure out you know how they could listen to the engines and understand how they knew which plane it was uh, the, the staccato of the machine guns mm. Uh, the fear of the Grosse Bertha, which was this monstrous cannon that could fire a shell from several miles away, and it would come in with no sound. You wouldn't hear the fire, and it would just crash into uh, Paris and explode. And I'm commenting really more of a terrorist weapon than a real weapon of destruction because you just never knew when it was going to drop in. So, uh, Yeah, walking around with that thought in your mind that that could happen at any moment would just i think terrify the average person in general um it seems pretty difficult to deal with um and it's easy to say sitting in a comfort of an office that would be difficult but to actually be there and live it well how did this affect him how did this his period of time how long i don't think i've asked this question and i probably should have a long time ago how long was he actually in france he went to france I think he arrived there about the middle of January of 1918, and he left in March of 1919. And how did it affect him personally? I think it was, now remembering here that he was 37 years old, uh, he did a lot of growing up. Uh, he had grown up in a home that was wealthy. He mm. had pretty much a sheltered life he had tailor-made clothes he had the things that he needed the nice things and he went to war the way a lot of guys out of high school would have gone to war you know let's go get the hun and uh, clean this thing up and save the french from their oppressors and you know everything's going to be great and he found it was horrible it was just absolutely terrible. I made a comment on another interview that he was naive, and, and I got to thinking, well, that's not the kind of word you want to throw around, especially about Dr. Machen. But you're going to say benighted, ignorant? You know, none of them are nice. But there was a naivete there about what was going to happen, what it was well, going to be like. And he certainly wasn't alone. It no, it was like, common. It was yeah. everybody that everybody that was in battle for the first time has a certain idea what it's going to be like but the people that were the pros knew it was going to be miserable you know it's going to be the worst thing you could possibly ever think of i had friends in college that fought in vietnam and they would very reluctantly tell stories and i thought how does anybody survive this you know it's just horrible uh one diary i read written by a Soldier, it may have been David Sneed's book uh, on uh, George Brown's letters home. Uh, the guy describes a scene where he's looking out over this vast battlefield, and just everything's gone. You know, there's a few tree stumps here and there, and holes everywhere, dead horses, because horses were used a lot, body parts. And out in the middle of this massive battlefield is this soldier slumped over the tip of his bayonet, propped up in the middle of the battlefield and, and there's this total silence total devastation and destruction and here is this just bizarre scene of this corpse hanging over his bayonet 
and uh, these kind of things were not all that unusual, you know, to see these oddities of war and uh, terrible thing. How did this How did this affect his Christianity? It strengthened him. Uh, strengthened him for the gospel. Why do you think that would it, it strengthened it? Because he saw the misery of sin. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Uh, the need of the gospel to take the feet out of the miry clay and set them upon the rock, and uh, people dying left and right. I mean, I, I can't imagine. You know, you mentioned. Saving Private Ryan again. I'm not advertising, but the vividness of the movie was, uh, or the series, I guess. You know, a horrible thing. But this is what those guys in World War II had to deal with, and in World War One. And uh, you know, I'd like to think that because of what he saw in the war, and it's strengthening his resolve for the gospel, really helped him get ready for what was going to take place in the twenties. Right. And we're going to talk a little bit about his experiences there briefly in a minute. Now, these letters he wrote back, we've already talked about the fact that he, he had been in communication with his mother, um, certainly was close to her growing up and, and all the things that you had already said. Did he write to anybody else? Wrote to his brother. Uh, his, I can't remember if it was Arlie or Tom. Arlie was his older brother and Tom was his younger brother, probably Arlie, who was Arthur Webster Machen II, named for his father. Mostly about financial things, you know. I, I'm having trouble with the IRS. The IRS was, I don't know if it's called the IRS at that time, but he got in trouble for not paying his taxes on time. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, here, here's this guy in this war helping the soldiers out with a Y, and the government can't even give him a break on the taxes. Yeah, they were but, too worried about it. He didn't pay, you didn't pay your taxes. Yeah, well, they had to pay for the war. That ended up being very expensive. Well, uh, there was a solution to that. They just stop, stop making war. Yeah. Okay. Different subject. We'll we'll gravitate into a political podcast here in a minute if we're not careful. But okay, I'm sorry. You say he was talking with his brother. Anybody else? Uh, there was a couple letters to some ladies that had sent him some knitted knitted goods, a stocking cap, and I think some socks. Uh, you know, ninety five, ninety seven, eight percent of the letters are to his mother. Hmm. Which somewhat shows the relationship he had with his mom. And remember, too, that, that Machen's father had died in 1915. Here we are in 1918, and uh, both of the other sons are married. And uh, I think Machen felt, uh, you know, as much as he could to try to hmm. keep in contact and uh, lay her worries. Was he the oldest? Kind of, no, he was in the middle. Did his brother serve in the war at all? No. So he was the only one that, that was in, engaged in the war effort, as it were, right, right. during that period. And, and what were some of the basic things that you – know, we've talked a little bit about some of the things, that you know, the insights into Machen's heart as he wrote. Because if he's – I find that when I write, I can communicate sometimes my heartfelt emotions or what I'm really thinking maybe better than I can in words. But um, – but we didn't really always talk about some of the other subjects. What were some of the other things that maybe he discussed, um, regardless of who he was writing to, um, during this period? And for instance, did he get, did he get into any kind of theological discussions um, in conversation? No, no, no. Well, 
other than the comments he made about the French scholarship and his kind of frustrated attempts to prepare for the Sprunt lectures that he was going to do, there wasn't really a whole lot of talk about uh, the theological issues. Uh, again, remembering here that he's, he's writing his mother, and if something came up relevant to that, he would mm-hmm. mention it. But uh, the letters were to inform the family back home, not only the mother, but secondarily, I think, to keep his mother aware that he was alive, at least he was a few days ago or five days ago, sure. or however long it took the letter to, to get there. And it must have been some comfort to her, obviously, to hear from him, knowing that he is well, at least, as you said, three or four days prior. Now, we talked a little bit about his relationship with his mom. When did she actually pass away? When did she die? 1931. So when he's still a relatively young man, and, and how, would he re- how did he respond to that? Um... You know, I read about his response to his father's death because it was involved with some other correspondence I was working on for an article. And uh, he didn't really express to, you know, a whole lot. Uh, the, the person he was writing to had consoled him about his father's death. And uh, he didn't really, uh, you know, I don't remember anything particular about his mother's death. I may have just not come across any letters mm-hmm. in which he mentioned it. Now, shortly after he turned from this um, work with the YMCA, he began to work at Princeton Seminary, and then we have what I think any student of church history knows. If they know anything about Machen, that they know about this particular period where he began to have these battles with the seminary and, and, and subsequently broke <coughs> off. Um, started this the seminary that you got your phd at and uh, also the opc can you tell us briefly what was going on around that period and um perhaps um the good and bad of that excuse me uh things began with a a shift in the curriculum at Princeton Seminary. Uh, a few years before Machen went over for World War I, there had been a rebellion by the students against the curriculum because they didn't feel it was practical enough. And it was uh, J. Ross Stevenson is mentioned in the letters, and, and Machen has a bit of a conflict with him while he's overseas. I mentioned that Stevenson was the one that encouraged Machen to go into the YMCA, but uh, Stevenson was involved in the, I don't know, making the curriculum, I hate that word, making the curriculum more practical. Um, And and Machen was in opposition to that. And as time went by, of course, B.B. Warfield was in opposition to it. Warfield died in 21. Um, And as things progressed, there was a reorganization of the seminary. And uh, eventually it came to the point where Machen felt that he could no longer continue to teach at the seminary. 
and uh, he and several other people left the seminary to form Westminster in 1929. I'm not doing well with this. I've got a complete blank. No, that's all right. Uh, Just out of curiosity, I I had taken a class here from Dr. Wilborn, who's one of the professors here, professor of church history um, at the seminary, and um, we talked at length about the starting of Westminster Seminary and the issue with the mission board and all this stuff that went on during that period. Just in your own opinion, um, do you think Machen erred in at this point by starting the seminary? Did he feel like he had no other choice? Um, was it a good thing, a bad thing? Given the climate, of course, that he was dealing with. I mean, we look back and we say, well, it must have been a good thing because it turned out to be a good thing, but regardless of that. Well, I think it was a good thing that the seminary was started. I think the problem more more was with the independent board of foreign missions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Starting the independent board and maybe uh, should have taken more time and thought into thinking about how he could have worked with what already existed. Uh, I don't have any problem with the seminary. I wonder about the independent board Mm -hmm. at that point in time. Mm. Uh, But, you know, when you get in the middle of something like that, I think there's a tendency to become a bit paranoid. And uh, I'm not talking clinically. He's not crazy. (laughs) But, you know, you start wondering who your friends and enemies are. Sure, sure. And uh, so uh, the feeling there that he had to – Maybe part from everything, you know, uh, because of the influences that were taking place. And it's important, I think, to remember, too, that he he saw the issues as issue that liberalism is something that really was not Christian. Uh, There was Christianity and there was liberalism. Uh, The one was supernatural and the gospel supernatural and liberalism was not and the problem was that the liberalism was influencing the evangelicalism and we see it right now Uh, liberalism is influencing evangelicalism whether it's generic Armenian evangelicalism or reformed evangelicalism Mm -hmm. Uh, it's there and so he made a lot of difficult decisions. Uh, he had friends that went along with him and uh, others who were sympathizers but couldn't leave the denomination, uh, couldn't leave Princeton for whatever reason, and did what he had to do. Interesting. Well, that's definitely a, a, it make an interesting study into the life of a man who um, spent time on the front in the war effort, as we've spent most of his time talking, and then spent other times in the front in a different kind of way dealing with matters in the church uh, that had long-reaching impacts so we see the result of that now with the orthodox presbyterian church um i think since what 1939 1936 36 36. and um still going here especially in the united states and um so we see that influence and we see him battling in in some sense the war effort in that period of his life and then transitioning over into this area. How did the his time um, in France prepare him for, which I think we would both agree was a much bigger effort, 
um, at that period of his of his life. I'm not kind of already answered this. You might have. Well, again, you know, the jealousy for the gospel. Uh, jealousy. For, I've been thinking a lot about uh, when they re-released Christianity and liberalism, there was uh, a mention of, you know, liberalism was not supernatural. Well, you know, is that all there is to the gospel? Is the gospel just supernatural? Is that a good way to think of things? And along the line of the Sprunt lectures and the origin of Paul's religion and, of course, Christianity and liberalism, the supernatural is, is a good way to look at the division. Uh, liberalism's natural. It's anti-supernatural. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he was a Pharisee. Well, what was the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee? Well, Sadducees were anti-supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, and he believed in it. Now, of course, they both had their problems. Jesus had many strong words for the Pharisees and Sadducees because they were the teachers of the people. But uh, I don't know why God chose the Apostle Paul any more than I know why he chose Abram. But... Uh, could it be that the supernatural seed that was within the Apostle Paul was a good starting point for the gospel? And I think of 1 Corinthians 15, you know, without the resurrection, uh, we are without hope. And uh, Paul be believed in the resurrection before he was converted and after the conversion. So, so I think Machen picked up on a good point there. Uh, you know, when when someone says the dead are not raised you might want to get up and walk out the door and go somewhere else Absolutely. Uh, when someone says the word of god is a, is another uh, eastern religious document just like any other eastern religious document and it is no more inspired by god than anything else it's time to find another place that's a supernatural statement that god uniquely worked through the personalities and intellects and skills of the authors of Scripture. That's supernatural statement. Uh, uh, the Son of God dying on the cross. It's a supernatural statement that Jesus was incarnate. Uh, and so it, it's a good point, and it, it's one that uh, he, he refers to often in the years of the conflicts in the Presbyterian Church, and, and, and it's true. You know, if people, someone might say, well, there's a case in the book where Machen is listening to a Roman Catholic priest. He, he would always try to go to church somewhere, to some type of worship. Mm -hmm. And uh, he makes a comment, you know, that the Catholics were generally more satisfactory than the liberals because they believed supernatural. And he made the comment that the priest had delivered a good sermon, a supernatural sermon on the loaves and the fishes. And Machen was sitting there writing a letter, I, I guess, as this went on, and, and the priest was serving the Mass. Of course, he wasn't, Machen wasn't paying attention to that, really. And people say, well, how, what's more supernatural than, you know, the, the bread and the wine turning into the body and blood of Christ? Well, sure, but the problem is it's not true. Mm -hmm. It was something he knew to be wrong, and it's time to write a letter, you know. Interesting. So I, I, I think – 
when somebody says, well, you know, Balaam's donkey didn't really talk. Uh, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Uh, the Lord God didn't part the Red Sea for Moses and the Israelites. It's time to find somewhere else hmm. to worship God. If you were to speak to a young man today, uh, what aspects of Machen would you hope that they would carry with them as they move in, maybe even to a young seminary student, but regardless, um, what aspects of Kate, uh, of Machen's life would you hope they would carry with them if you had just point to one or two? Well, I, I mentioned earlier, once he put his hand to the plow, he didn't look back. Uh, mm-hmm. An attribute I have found wanting in my life, but that's a good one. You know, stick to it. Stick to itiveness is not popular, especially in the universe of bites and bits and emails that look like people wrote them with their toes and other such things. But uh, stick to it. And then, of course, I'd say, you know, the gospel is man's only hope. Uh, and, and that's what he believed. And because of that, uh, sure, he may have made mistakes. Uh, maybe if he had thought about some things more, he might have not done them the way he did. I mm-hmm. mean, we all are like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, he stuck up for the integrity of the gospel in, in a situation where uh, what people believed was totally against what the Scripture was teaching. I, I listened to your interview of Paul Settle about the early days of the PCA, and uh, I grew up in that. I was in our church when we voted to leave the PCUS, and uh, I was too young to really know how bad things were, but the things he mentioned uh, at the time of the PCA leaving the PCUS pretty awful uh, reasons for leaving. I mean, uh, pretty awful in the sense that the things that were happening were awful and that people had to get together to to leave because of these things. Uh, And in a way, what Machen was facing didn't seem to be as awful as what was being faced in 1973. Um. Yeah, that's that. That is uh, a striking uh, element, and I think if I was the synthesizer, distill down what you've said, um, especially for young men and training in the ministry to to stick what what you're doing, um, hold on to the truth of the gospel with a tenacity. Um, don't let anybody turn you left, turn you right from these things. There may be things within the church that we can debate, but there are some things that aren't debatable. And I think that's one thing that Machen was very strong on. Um, well, there's things, intramural debates that we can have about various things, but when it comes to the authenticity of the Scriptures, God's divine revelation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and those elements, those are things we're not going to debate. And um, I think that's one lesson to definitely glean from his life as well as others. There's certainly others we could hold up as examples to us. But I think Machen tends to take that center stage. You hear that all the time, Machen's warriors and all this other business. And um, so it's always good to look at these people in the historical context and try to glean elements from them. 
um, that we can carry with us as we travel into the 21st century. You asked me earlier um, what you can learn from uh, reading someone's letters. And uh, you're alluding to Matron's Warrior Children, I think, an, mm-hmm. an article that was written. Uh, I, I think that the letters from World War One, combined with the letters he wrote to his al- alcoholic friend Richard Hodges show that the theological understanding of Machen was applied in the way he lived. And I want to say I love the fact that Greenville calls it applied theology and not practical theology. Uh, I don't like practical theology. Uh, you take the doctrines and they are applied in the way you live and what you do. And, uh, you know, that's a big help with the letters. And, of course, you always have to remember that when, when you're reading letters, uh, it's like you feel like you're being sneaky. You're reading somebody's mail. That's the way Grace Mullen in the archives would say, you know, I love reading letters. You know, I'm reading somebody's mail. And, well, you are. And uh, you're seeing things that he might not want you to see, or she might not, or whoever. And I should have maybe asked this earlier, but it just came to mind. I I almost wonder how he would feel if he were here and I could ask him, uh, you know, how do you feel about a book being published now with those letters you wrote to your mother and and those kinds of things? Do you have any insight maybe or thought at all as to how he may feel? If well, you had a guess anyway, it certainly would be a guess. But Early on, uh, the family had wanted to take some of his letters and publish them, and he had informed them that they couldn't do that. That was sort of a – well, it wasn't sort of. It was a, a restriction that was put on them because of censorship that, you know, they're afraid that the enemy might get some information. There's some indication in a few letters where the censors cut things out. And to me, you know, I might be reading into what was said. It seemed like he was sympathetic with the idea, you mm-hmm. know, maybe later. And now that, you know, this year is the 75th memorial of his death, uh, to have the letters published I think, I think is a good thing. At least the family liked it, you know, his mother and the, his brothers, I assume. And uh, I don't know. I, I'm not 100% sure, but there's a definite indication – that uh, he wanted his letters kept, his mother was keeping them, and uh, uh, he, he wanted to have them available for the future. Well, well said. Well, I've really appreciated this time and your willingness to talk with me about this subject. That it's not in the mainstream, as it were. It's, uh, you know, I don't see people talking about these kinds of things, but it's an interesting glimpse into the heart of a man, uh, especially under duress in a difficult period of time. And um, I think we've talked about those aspects. How can uh, our listeners get a copy of this book? Well, the book is published cooperatively by Westminster Seminary and PNR, and it's available on anywhere you would buy another book. Amazon and so right, forth. Right. I didn't know if I was supposed to say things. Oh, like that's that, okay. So. Yeah, no, that's fine. We have an Amazon store too. For those uh, who are Westminster listening. Seminary has it and has a very nice advertising page for it and then PNR has had it on its uh, uh, recent releases in the number one position for quite a while. Oh, I don't really? know yeah. if that's indication that they need to sell some or people are buying it, but uh, anywhere you could buy any other book. 
Yeah, it sounds good. And, and I would encourage people to get a copy of this book. It's not overly expensive. And I think it'll give you insight uh, in a different way um, than you might get from reading a, a work by the same person. Um, it, these are just personal letters uh, written to a, a woman who he was obviously close to, his own mother. And um, so it gives you a glimpse into the heart of a man who uh, labored uh, during the war effort, but then also, and probably more dramatically and more importantly, labored during those times in the, that that difficult time period in the thirties, nineteen thirties, with liberalism and, and a lot of other matters that affected the church. And um, God was overseeing all of that as well. Doctor, um, well, it's been great to talk with you about this subject, and I hope by talking with you, we've excited some people and maybe even doing a little bit of background study and research, reading about Machen's life and his contribution to the Christian faith. Um, it's significant, and I think people uh, ought to uh, avail themselves of those opportunities. And what better way, I can't think of a better way than to read personal letters written by the man, especially a man of this nature. Well, thank you, Bill and Josh, and I want to thank the seminary for asking me to do this. So thank That's, you. It's our pleasure. We're glad to have you. You have been listening to a discussion with Dr. Barry Waugh. He wrote a book called Letters from the Front, J. Gresham Machen's Correspondence from World War I. And we've been talking a little bit about all the different aspects to go into that and some of the background and the historical relevance to that as well as his influence and import into theological understanding as it pertained to Westminster Seminary, uh, the starting of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And so... We've had a good opportunity to hear about a man who, like all of us, were framed by our historical context. Uh, we do things in a historical context. We operate in a historical context. Machen was no different, and these things impacted him, and as it turned out, strengthened him for other uh, battles that were to be taken during his lifetime. And so I would encourage you to get a copy of this book, read it, learn more about this man he's somewhat contemporary as it were with us um you know he's not that far removed from most of us and so we will understand a lot of what's going on and get a better appreciation for his work his labors most importantly get a better appreciation for how christ builds his church and he certainly did through this man and he was used of god to um to bring the gospel to many different people many different places in many different circumstances and so Get a copy of this book, read it, um, read it for enjoyment, read it to learn, understand, and to be edified, um, as we always encourage people to do here. Uh, I was going to tell you what's coming up on the prog- program, but there's really not much point. Um, just go to the website. You'll figure it out. It's confessingourhope.com. There I try to lay out as much information as I can when I have time to do it, which doesn't seem to be much as, as much as I'd like these days. Um, next week semester starts so you'll be listening to this probably two or three weeks into the semester but as it turns out i will become very busy but we still plan on doing this once a week and i can assure you we have guests lined up some very exciting programs already on tap so stay tuned look at the website and get all the information there so until next time we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of confessing our hope the podcast of greenville presbyterian theological seminary and god bless